Before attempting to bring a human into the world, I would travel to its farthest corner, where survival is not easy, to bear witness to the impact our species is having on the only continent with no indigenous inhabitants, this place that theoretically belongs to all of us. Humans have long projected that which they most desire and fear onto the ice, and I am no exception. The longer I dwell in this discomfort, drawn in two directions at once, the more fully committed I become to chronicling the course I will chart toward Antarctica and motherhood both. That was the voice of author Elizabeth Rush, reading from her new book, The Quickening, on motherhood and Antarctica in the 21st century, and whose 2018 book, Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. In The Quickening, Elizabeth Rush takes the reader on a journey to Thwaites Glacier, one of the largest glaciers in the world at the southernmost tip of our planet. Rush documents her voyage offering the sublime, seeing an iceberg for the first time, the staggering waves of the Drake Passage, the torqued, unfamiliar contours of Thwaites, alongside the workaday moments of this groundbreaking expedition. A ping-pong tournament at sea, long hours in the lab, all the effort that goes into caring for and protecting human life in a place that is inhospitable to it. Along the way, she takes readers on a personal journey around a more intimate question. What does it mean to bring a child into the world at this time of radical change? I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice University's Environmental Studies program and the program manager of the Deluvial Houston Initiative, and you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and potential solutions facing our community. Today, we're speaking with Elizabeth Rush. Elizabeth Rush, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I am so delighted to be speaking with you. Um, so just to start off, I, I have admired your work since Rising, um, and I ran out to get The Quickening the day it was released. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and was really, you know, thrilled to read it and then uh, finished it, and my mother's birthday was coming up. And so I immediately ran out and got her a copy as well. Um, and I did so, one, because it's, it's this beautiful story of, of motherhood and how you're thinking of the Antarctic as mother and your own journey toward motherhood. Um, but also, you know, my, my mother, like many people, I think, is is very bright and really cares about climate change and wants to learn about climate change, but does not necessarily want to sit through the IPCC formal report of 3,000 pages. Right? I am nodding along in, <laughs> in acknowledgement. Yes, agreed. And I, I thought this was, you know, both a really accessible book to understanding what's going on with climate change, but also just so beautifully crafted and so much, you know, gorgeous narrative and storytelling that is funny in place. Places and charming and hopeful and and about so many of these different ways we embrace that and so just to start us off you know I want to talk some about the, the dual and dueling maybe mm. impetuses of this I don't really need to, to ask about you know why did you want to be a mother mm. but I'm very curious about why did you want to go to the Antarctic especially knowing that that would delay your your adventure into motherhood by about a year I mean, I think my interest in Antarctica really began um, with my work on Rising. So Rising 
is this book um, that I spent seven years reporting. It's an on-the-ground investigation of the impact that sea level rise is having in the present tense on like eight different coastal communities around the U.S. And I feel like I, in spending a lot of time with people who are sort of directly watching the ground beneath their feet disappear, I started to grow comfortable with the fact that there was kind of like a range of future possibilities for sea level rise. Like, is there three feet of sea level rise or six feet by the end of this century? We really don't know, and we have to get comfortable in not knowing. Um, but then I started to read about this particular glacier in Antarctica called Thwaites, um, and I started to grow uncomfortable again because mm. it it alone contains the pos- enough ice to raise the sea levels globally two feet, um, but it acts as a kind of cork to the West Antarctic ice sheet. And if we lose that, we get, you know, 10 feet of global sea level rise or more. And we're talking, the, the thing with the weights that's so fascinating and a little bit nerve-wracking, if you think about it too hard, is that literally... Um, at the time I was reading about it, like six, seven, eight years ago, we have no observational data from mm. the place where the glacier discharges ice into the sea. So a lot of our predictions about how it will behave are really just predictions. And I was intrigued by that. And I thought, you know, here's this like glacier that kind of holds some of the questions about who we have to become in in balance and mm. i kind of i wanted to see it up close <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a strange desire but um it felt like it was a really fundamental actor in this story that i hadn't spent a lot of time with yet no absolutely and i mean in in, in weaving us through you know this kind of journey to thwaites one of the things that immediately strikes us is the fact that, you know, you, you write it from the perspective very much of I'm a woman going to this place that has been dominated by men. And I use that word very deliberately. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and it really, you know, kind of an you know, amusing anecdote around the advice that you get that's very different from men who've been to Antarctica and women who've traveled. And I'm just wondering if you can, you know, th- this frame is so important to really thinking about, you know, I don't know if you describe yourself as an eco-feminist, but I mean, this is this is absolutely a work that is investigating and thinking about the ways that climate change disproportionately hit women and hit us in, in different ways depending on our own positionality. And can you talk us through some of that experience, both both that venture to Antarctica, but especially as a woman, um, what that was like. Yeah, I mean, I sometimes, I joke, although it is not at all a joke, that I'm like, oh, this is an eco-feminist rewriting of Antarctic (laughs) history. Um, And it is, I think, at a deep level. I think, um, you know, when I went to the library to take books out on Antarctica, which is you know, what a nonfiction writer does when they start a new project. I was like, okay, you know, like there's not that much that has been written. I felt relief at first mm-hmm. um, because the first person to see Antarctica saw it 200, a little over 200 years ago. Wow. Um, so every single first person story we have has been written in the last two centuries. And I like, you know, literally filled tote bags and like schlepped them back <laughs> to my office got them to my desk and like started unloading them. And only then did I really realize that they were, uh, I think of like the two dozen that I took out that first day, 
22 were written by men. Mm. Um, one was written by a woman, and then one was written by a woman about Shackleton. So, like, mm. um, <laughs> I'm going to sort of count that. And, you know, there were no authors of color, and it just dawned on me really early on that this is a place that has the stories that have been told about it have been dominated by a really particular demographic. And I started reading these books and I just start, I grew bored really quickly because they also all replay like the same three events. It's like Amundsen's conquest of the pole. Scott dies on his way coming back from losing the pole to Amundsen. Uh, Shackleton's miraculous return. Like every single book has these events in them and not a lot. Of, I mean, it does. They do have more than that but I found their repetition really frustrating um and so I knew that I wanted to like write differently about Antarctica and I was thinking about and wanting to become a mother at this time and I think there was just some part of my brain that was like oh I'm not gonna hold that story separate mm. from the Antarctica story I'm going to, I did, I mean, as soon as I got on the boat, like, I knew this was going to be a book about motherhood in Antarctica, even though I had not gotten pregnant. That's fascinating. Um, and so, you know, that also felt really risky to kind of be like, ooh, I'm going to, like, put my desire to become a mother in in this book, <laughs> and we don't even know if it's going to happen yet. Um, but, yeah, so it was there, and I think it was in very much like a response to the canon as it existed. I was going to say, the whole time you're talking about these books, I'm like, I'm not picking up a lot of people who've written about Antarctica and motherhood or children in this list you're giving. Totally, totally. I mean, and and to be fair, like there are more books written by women in the last couple decades mm. as the number of women making their way to the ice has increased. Um. But there's still not a lot about motherhood in Antarctica. And I found that fascinating because in many ways, like you talk to scientists and they'll say actually somewhat plainly like that Antarctica really shapes us and like mm -hmm. helps give birth to human civilization as we know mm -hmm. it because the ice shelves and the ice sheets have held stable for so long. Like we wouldn't have our coastal communities mm -hmm. if sea levels were rising um, at, like, quote-unquote, more traditional rates, right? Like, three feet of sea level rise a century is actually kind of normal outside of the Holocene. Um, so there's something about Antarctic stability that helps us become mm. humans in the way that we know ourselves to be. Um, so, yeah, I started to think about Antarctica as a mother. Mm -hmm. and It's a really beautiful idea that runs throughout the book, yeah. Yeah, it's it, it felt generative, and it mm. felt... A little dangerous and I always tell my <laughs> students like if something feels dangerous as you're writing it you're probably <laughs> on the right track absolutely so to the, the point of motherhood as well though you also I mean it's fascinating because you don't just write about your own experience you write about other Antarctic scientists who, who go and have children and children in Antarctica who are connected to Antarctica and I mean it's really fascinating to think of the way it becomes a community, which is another major idea that runs throughout this. And so I'm wondering if you can talk some about that communal experience, mm -hmm. both of going to Antarctica, but also, you know, how, how that's really informing your thoughts as you're writing. Yeah, you know, well, my brain kind of goes in two directions at once. <laughs> I'm like, we very much did become a family on this icebreaker. Mm -hmm. We were on board the Nathaniel B. Palmer 
Um, and, you know, even the boat is named after the first person to supposedly <laughs> see the ice. So, like, everywhere you turn, the whole landscape is, like, inscribed with the names of, of these men, these conquerors and these discoverers. Um, but so our boat, there were 57 of us on board. We were on board for 54 days. And I'll be honest, like, my biggest fear getting on this boat, I've, I've done a fair amount of, like, adventuring in my life. It's just something that, like, has driven me as a person. Um, my biggest fear was not, like, the adventure and the going to the mm. ice. My biggest fear was not being able to be alone. I'm also mm. actually, like, a closet <laughs> introvert. I play extrovert very nice, but I, like, recharge by myself. And this was the first time I was going to have a roommate in my wow. life. Um, <laughs> and that was what really terrified me. And much to my surprise, um, I did perfectly fine on this boat. And I think in part because we became such a tight-knit community. Mm-hmm. And when you are such a tight-knit community, I think it's a little bit easier to recognize the needs of the members and kind of honor them. like. Mm-hmm. It, on this boat, it was actually fine for me to, like, disappear for a couple hours when I needed it and, like, go find a room with no people in it and <laughs> read some poetry or do what I needed to recharge. And there was sort of an – and also, like, an acknowledgement that you could walk down the hallway and someone would be like, good morning, and you could be like, oh, because, <laughs> you know what, you haven't had your coffee yet or whatever. Like, you don't have to be – the good outward-facing person Mm. all the time, you kind of get to just be a more authentic, I think, version of the self. So I was really surprised by that. We became really close on this boat. And, um, I, you know, like I said, when I started, I knew it was going to be a book about motherhood in Antarctica. I think it took me about a month to work up the gumption and also a feeling of trust with my shipmates to start asking them, like, what they knew of their own births. Mm. So we had been doing, like, I I did, like, a daily interview practice on the boat. I tried to, you know, talk to maybe about four or five people a day for about 20 to 30 minutes each. Wow. Um, I transcribed all the interviews while I was on the boat, which was really painstaking yep. <laughs> process. Um, but I remember about a month in being like, oh, I'm going to start asking them what they know about their own births. And that felt totally crazy. Like (laughs) most people, you know, you can talk about marine ice cliff instability. You can also talk about what we had for dinner. But then there's like this other level of question that's like, so tell me, you know, what was your mother doing on the day you were born? Like, let's walk through the event step by step. To the credit of my shipmates, not a single person said, like, I don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> even the chief scientist, which is pretty cool. No, I mean, you, you have wonderful um, commentary and thought, um, you know, and, and writings from from the, your compatriots on this adventure. Um, and because you mentioned dinner there for a moment, I, you know, I, I will say I'm from New Orleans and... I was delighted because you keep reading about like Mardi Gras happening on the vessel and it seems like you have this large kind of Gulf Coast contingent there and you actually write a good bit about many of these people, you know, their parents worked in the oil industry or they they themselves actually have experience on oil rigs. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that relationship some, especially coming out of Houston, thinking about the really kind of fascinating parallels that you build between the oil industry and making this adventure possible. 
Yeah, to me that was such a surprise mm-hmm. and so fascinating. It was I, not something I expected at all. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> I am shaking my head. Um, I think the kind of like two biggest nexies for this kind of crossover that we're talking about are one, our our boat is actually leased to the U.S. government from mm. a company called Edison Schwess, and Edison Schwess is based in the Gulf, um, out of Galliano, Louisiana. And their, like, bread and butter is servicing offshore oil rigs. So mm-hmm. they're, like, they're actually this this mm-hmm. company that's, like, deeply entwined with the oil and gas industry. And they just happen to have made an icebreaker <laughs> in, like, 1990. Wow. And they lease it to the U.S. <laughs> government. Um, so a lot of folks who, who, like, work on board the boat do have some of that crossover between the oil and gas industry and this mission. Um And then another thing that I think is even perhaps more fascinating, like there's, let's put it this way, like there's this cognitive dissonance there that this boat uh, is run by this company. And also, I'm not surprised. Like I think that in our brains we like to hold, if you're like an environmentalist, it's like the oil and gas industry is over there Mm -hmm. um, and they're the bad guys. And, you know... Uh, there's like this righteous earth-saving mission that's ongoing and it's over here. And I think that it's like far more complicated than that. I'm looking at like the table in this recording studio and I'm like, most of this stuff is made through, you know, the like burning of fossil fuels, mm-hmm. um, me getting here. Like, <laughs> I think that we're just far more entwined than we really have space in our brains to recognize. We kind of know it, but we also hold it at a distance. So the boat was like an interesting example of that. I think perhaps even more profound was the fact that as I talked to people about their birth stories, I want to say five, four, I think it's four, four of the people on board had parents who like literally were working in the oil and gas industry when they were born, be it as, like, a geologist Mm -hmm. or, like, someone servicing the oil rigs or um, fitting new pipe. So I started to hear all these stories of, you know, my dad was out in the oil fields and he was five hours from home and he came running back, but he missed my birth because Mm -hmm. we didn't have cell phones back then. And (laughs) um, it was fascinating to think about that, you know, the the people on the boat who are doing some of this scientific labor, like their education, their familial network is supported by the very thing that's like endangering mm. and causing the transformation of the weights. Um, and it also makes me think of something a friend and colleague said uh, that I think about all the time. She's like, what we're doing is intergenerational work, mm-hmm. right? Like, if we expect a change right now, that's setting our expectations in the wrong place. But it's interesting for me to think about, like, oh, a parent's love of an interest in, you know, like, the composition of Earth which might have in the 70s registered as, like, I'm going to be a geologist Mm -hmm. for ExxonMobil, now turns into their daughter becoming a a sedimentologist on this boat studying the weights. So, I mean, I think it's, like, an interesting example of sort of intergenerational change as well. Absolutely. And it's, you know, I mean, that that necessity of, you know, you're talking about 
the only way this trip happens is with oil and gas and, you know, the carbon emissions that have to go. And at the same time, the the value of the research coming out and, you know, the new discoveries that are made, what's learned, help to reshape not only our understanding of the planet. You know, there's that great quote you have about uh, from one of the scientists who throws out, we know more about the moon than right. we know about Antarctica and, and where we are right now. Um, I mean, the realities of understanding how how our world is changing are so impactful for, you know, the younger generation, the next generation, the generations to come, you know, these these kind of conversations that we're having. Um, so I, I want to ask, but before we, we dive more, like, I, I do want to talk about a lot of the, the really beautiful, you know, child narratives going on. Um, but, but first, I want to just ask about, you know, let, let's jump into when you actually get to where you're going. We talked mm. a little through, you know, that journey and getting there. Um, but, you know, that experience of actually reaching Antarctica, of going out on the ice, um, in particular, there's a moment that just kind of sticks with me about, you know, you're, you've been out collecting core data and samples and, and pulling ice. And, and, and suddenly, you know, your, your chief scientist who's there, I believe, it, it may have been somebody else, but somebody, you know, who's there, who's leading the expedition, turns around and says, okay, take, take 20 minutes and just... Mm be here just be where you you know meant to come can you can you walk us i mean i'm never going to antarctica right. so i really want to know what that's like i mean i have to laugh because i literally <laughs> he he's not the chief scientist but he was like the acting pi for that part principal investigator of that part of the investigation i was chatting with him recently um i sent everyone in the book the book obviously mm. and he was like you know what i meant by that and i was like I thought you were telling us to like go have a like sublime experience in Antarctica. He's like, no, I was telling you to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> well, I misunderstood <laughs> clearly. See, this is why scientists need <laughs> artists, writers, humanists. <laughs> Little translation. <laughs> to, to accompany them sometimes, to remind them of the sublime. Totally. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> it, it was. I was like, wow. All these years, um, I've been thinking of it this other way. Getting to Antarctica, gosh. I mean, what you were just talking about is really uh, the first time that I, like, saw land in Antarctica. We were at the, like, Lindsay and Schaefer Islands, which are just, um, oh, I always get a little turned around. Let's say (laughs) north of the weights. And we had probably been at sea for, like, 20, 15, 20 days at that point. I want to say 15 because then we had our medical evacuation. So about 15 days. Uh, it was really surreal to just arrive at solid earth after mm. 15 days at sea. And these particular islands sort of like rose out of the out of the ocean like the kind of ridges on a reptile, reptile spine. And they were covered, absolutely covered in penguins. And I... You know, I was very lucky to be able to get on a Zodiac and deploy to these islands and then help some scientists search for penguin bones on them. Um, The thing that struck sticks with me most viscerally is the smell because they're just covered in penguin poo. (laughs) Um, And they I didn't realize penguin poo is sort of pink because they eat a lot of krill, which Mm -hmm. look like shrimp. Um... And it had that kind of, like, baked uh, crustacean 
uh, drying in the sun uh, aroma to it. And also it was like bizarrely like sort of, I think the poo is sort of like, I don't know, powdery. So it like mm. lofts in the air and has like a texture oh. to it. Um, You're not selling me on an Antarctic adventure, listen, I have to I'm say. Listen, I'm just telling you, like these were the, these were the, amen, these were the senses that were engaged. I actually never touched the ice of the weights. Um, oh. We really, the boat sailed right along the calving edge, but we never got on top of the weights. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that was something that was sort of surprising to me. So the time I got onto these islands, like, we're near Thwaites, but we're not actually there. And it took me until the time that we're heading back that I realized, like, oh, I've gotten so close to this ice, but I've never, I still haven't really touched it. And that felt kind of profound. Like, um... It still exists a bit at an arm's length. No matter mm. how close we draw to it, there's just literally no human experience predating ours there. And I often felt sort of vexed by that. Like there was just not a lot of anything of context for me to go on. Even when you're there and you're next to this ice shelf, you know, the ice, you can see like 80 feet about of ice kind of floating in alongside you as this continuous wall. But that also means that there's like 500, 600, 700 feet of ice beneath the water. Mm. Um, and so there's so much that you don't see. There's so much that remains like very mysterious even when you're in incredibly close contact with it. And so I definitely left at the end of my time there being sort of maybe almost more perplexed than how I arrived, which is, Mm. you know, really acknowledging how beyond complete comprehension Mm -hmm. this glacier in this place is. It was really cool. I mean, those are remarkable experiences in life, though, when we, yeah, when we leave with that sense of profundity. Yes, yes. (laughs) I mean, like, I'm very grateful for having having encountered the limits of my knowledge, for sure. Nothing compares. (laughs) You mentioned, you know, not not actually getting to Thwaites, but also one of the realities of this is uh, in the book you talk about the research experience being cut short. And so I'm wondering if you can talk some about, you know, why it was cut short, Mm -hmm. what's happening, and and what that means going forward. Sure. So we, like... One, we were cut short on the front end because we had like a 10-day medical evacuation. Mm-hmm. And then once we get to Thwaites, um, we worked for a little under a week directly in front of the glacier, literally in a pocket of open water that had never been not frozen wow. since humans started keeping track. and. Um, even in the years since, it's been so cluttered with like debris from Thwaites that mm-hmm. boats haven't been able to make it back. Past, you know, more recent expeditions. Um, so we spent a little less than a week working in this unnamed bay. You know, on overdrive, twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, trying to just gather as much information as humanly possible. And I remember going up to the top deck, like, I think it's like morning six post-arrival and just being sort of gobsmacked by how beautiful it was. It had been very gray and gloaming and sort of like 
moody for most of those six days. And I got up this morning and it was like bright and sunny and there were all of these icebergs in the bay. And I took all these photos and I just thought this is the most gorgeous day of the cruise so far. And then I went downstairs and I started doing my interviews and my transcription. And then the chief scientist came in and he had his computer open and he was kind of like clicking back and forth between two aerial images. And in one, the weights is like a solid mass. And in the next, it looks like, you know, a teenager took a baseball bat to a windshield and it's just shattered. And it took like there and they have dates on them. And the first one is taken like the day we arrived or thereabouts. And the second one is taken on the morning of the day that we're in. Mm -hmm. And it struck me. I was like, oh, those icebergs were like a big chunk of the ice sheet literally falling apart. And it happened right in front of me. It happened all around us. And we didn't really know. Like, we could see the icebergs, yeah. but we, like, didn't know the drama of what was going on. Um, so the chief scientist basically called up to the mate and said, the mate on on watch, and was like, we need to leave. Like, we need to leave right now. Because, um, I mean, all you have to do is think about the Titanic. Like, you don't want to actually be sailing around a bunch of big icebergs. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm unfamiliar with this story. <laughs> what what yeah. happened to the Titanic? And... <laughs> Um, and we yeah, and we turned sound. around and and we like uh, I forget the expression, but we like uh, we hauled it out of there, <laughs> and uh, and that and that was the end of our ability to collect data from that part of the weights. We mm-hmm. did get around to the eastern edge of the weights um, and do some work there, but our time was really cut short by the weights going to pieces in front of us. Well, I mean, you opened the book talking about the significance of this glacier and what it means for for rising water and especially thinking, you know, coming out of rising, going into coastal erosion. You know, I mean, this is to then, yeah, it'll be watching this glacier, you know, disintegrate in front of you. It's really, it's, it's just a stark moment. Um, okay, I, wa- I want to switch gears slightly. Okay. <laughs> Because I do want to move us back towards children and and motherhood, particularly, I will say, you know, I, one of the things that I've so enjoyed in reading both your books is I, I I feel an immediate kinship to you when I'm reading, particularly you're a, you're a younger writer, and mm-hmm. um, you know I I'm not much younger than you. We're you know roughly the same age, many similar life stage things mm-hmm. going on, and walking into this book about parenthood, and you're being very frank mm-hmm. about your own. Uh, you know, questions about having a child and what it means and what it means in a, in a world that's changing with the climate. Um, you know, that's something that not only I feel very acutely, but mm-hmm. a lot of my friends, we have very frank discussions about. And I'm wondering if you can walk us through some of your own process, because for me, it was really generative and actually kind of freeing. But I'd love for you to share, you know, I, I will share, the, you, you know, you in the book with you, you, you're having a child. Yes. <laughs> uh, you've now had that child. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'll, I'll let you speak. <laughs> oh, I mean, I recently was trying to think about, you know, who my imagined audience is for this book. And I feel like that sort of sounds like I'm thinking about that late in the game. And maybe that's true. 
Um, I think the audience truly is anyone. I will say, like, I think young people run out and get this because it speaks to you in a great way. But also, like I said, I gave this to my mother. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. I think anyone can absolutely pick this book up. So I, w- I will plug you there. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, yeah, some part of me is like, it is an Antarctic adventure story. And secretly, if I get a bunch of, like, backpacker magazines to read, oh, magazine yes. readers to read it, I will, I'll be happy. But, um, you know... I feel like I wrote Rising because I was like, I want more people to have a seat at the table in this Mm. conversation. And I want to be really democratic in who speaks about these issues because we often, like I said, kind of keep this like sacrosanct environmental space over here. And that's very separate from um, like the weave of everyday life. And I wanted to kind of like destroy that boundary a little bit because it's not just like the sacrosanct environmentalists who are... Um, being impacted by by climate change, not at all. So I recently was thinking about this book, and I was like, you know, if it makes folks feel less alone in Mm. the conundrum of, you know, whether or not to have, not just whether or not to have a child, but, like, how should a person be right now? Mm. Like, how, how, what are we supposed how should a person be, um, to sort of quote Sheila Hetty. Um, if it makes us feel a little bit less alone in this, like, impossible era that we're living in, then I think it will have done its job. Um, I certainly, as a young person who cares deeply about the earth and... Um, you know, has spent a lot of time inside of the climate space. I wanted to have a child. And one of the things I kept feeling was really guilty about that Mm -hmm. desire. Um, And quite frankly, like even going to Thwaites, I don't think when I'm on this mission, I've like set that guilt aside yet. I think it would really take encountering an essay by me and Chris who's uh, since become like a friend and colleague and we have a climate change reading group together, actually, (laughs) which is incredible. I feel like I'm so grateful for that community. Sounds like an incredible reading group, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Um, She wrote this really, really, really great essay called Is It Still Okay to Have a Child? Mm. And she talks at some length about how BP, British Petroleum, popularized the carbon footprint Mm -hmm purposefully in 2005 in a campaign to start this like large-scale sort of blame shifting away from the fossil fuel industry onto the individual consumer. And so you can actually like go and see images from this hundreds of millions of dollar ad campaign that, you know, they're so basic. It's like black text that's highlighted yellow and it's like, what's a carbon footprint? Everybody has one. It's how much CO2 is pumped into the atmosphere when you drive to work or when you cook a steak or whatever. And that kind of thinking has become so ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. And I find it really like it augments a sensation of being sort of paralyzed. Like Mm -hmm. what decision, what is the right thing to lower my carbon footprint? And the truth is like we really don't have great mechanisms for like evaluating that on a day to day basis. Um, and 
it makes us think that that is the scale of the decision we should be making. Like, we should be, like, really concerned if I'm getting, like, tomatoes from New Jersey or California and the like, packaging that they're in. It's, like, and the plastic versus the cardboard. And, like, that's where I'm really going to turn this ship around. And that's such a lie, right? Like, I think what we clearly need is, like, collective action for rapid transition away from fossil fuel infrastructure and our dependency on it. Um, but instead, we're like at Whole Foods thinking about tomato <laughs> traveling distance. So, um, and, and, and we often increasingly see in those carbon footprint calculators, you can put in having a baby or not having mm. a baby. And they all tell you the best way to lower your carbon footprint is to not have a baby. And when I thought about that, I was like, you know, basically... I don't want BP in my womb or heart <laughs> making those decisions for me. And, you know, back off, man. <laughs> so I definitely, my guilt went to went towards rage when I read that essay, and that was really clarifying for me. Um, but, you know, I feel like the book tries not to say my decision should be your decision, but mm -hmm. instead kind of creates a space to think through what it means, um, that to me feels more important. Like, I don't have the solution. I just want a reader to have the opportunity to think through the conundrum in a community, like feeling like you have a little bit of a guide. Absolutely. And I mean, actually, one of the things you were talking about with collective action was also really, these are all, you know, wonderful things that I just found so clarifying and helpful in my thinking as I'm reading both what you were just describing with, you know, the process of, of having a child, but also that collective action versus individual responsibility, um, particularly because I tend to, to lean with my students, right? You know, there's a, a real desire to be like, what can we do right now? Right. How do we fix this? Right. And I, I really try to center it on like, it's policy solutions, it's collective action. It's really, this is not your obligation to fix to the extent that I'm sometimes dismissive of, you know, this is, you know, individual action of what you can do. And there's a really great part where actually you're, you're, you're kind of in conversation with a colleague talking about who'd given a presentation talking about, you know, it's both, right? That actually right. individual action does create a kind of cultural change that's significant and it can be very important, but it can't also be the onus is fully on us as individuals that it requires both. And I, I thought that was really clearly and, and well expressed in a way that was gave me something very tangible to take back with my students and, and folks who I talk to on these, on these uh, subjects. Um, and then there's another part of the book where you're talking with another uh, recent mother um, who, you know, I think says something that, that you know, most of us feel as, as, as when we have children or who are our parents, but, you know, talking about just the kind of fear and the and the concern mm. and the worry that comes along with with having a child that you're you're going to have I think a normal human fear of and protective right. instinct right, but how that's amplified by climate change and I'm wondering some you know you you have a child now, mm. um, and how how do you think about what their relationship to climate change is and what are you trying to instill in them mm. in ways of connecting to the world. Gosh, I mean, I feel like your question has, like, three parts. I'm sorry. Yeah, yes. that's why. <laughs> I'm like, you know, that sense, because we went from, like, individual to collective action and also, like, thinking about. Oh, if you can loop those together, I'm great. Like, I was just going to, you know, say, that was me saying thanks. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, part I think that 
where my brain goes right now has to do with this movie that I saw yesterday. Yeah. So I'm just going to talk about that, <laughs> um, which is incidentally, it was like an assignment for my climate change reading group. So mm. me and Chris is <laughs> also watching this movie right Excellent. about now. Um, it's called Women at War, and it's about like a woman who is so um, aware of the destruction that the fossil fuel industry is like sort of wreaking on the planet and really at our expense that she starts to perform these acts of like eco-sabotage. It's it's an Icelandic film. And they're just these really gorgeous scenes of her like hiking out into um, these moorlands and readying a bow and arrow and like causing, you know, the, the smelter to shut mm-hmm. down because she... Uh, basically like short circuits the electricity that that supplies these different power plants and she's really trying to like make it unappetizing for Chinese investors to keep investing in this kind <laughs> of um, uh, build out of this kind of infrastructure in her mm-hmm. country and she's pretty successful at it like and there's this growing campaign around her and this mystery around like who's doing these acts and what does it mean and and the investors do pull out um and then she finds out that she gets to she's been accepted to adopt a child mm-hmm. and the child like lost both their parents in the Ukraine in and she feels this like onus to go protect this individual being mm-hmm. and i thought that it was a really interesting um, way of dealing with that sense of like how do I shepherd and care for one thing and also how do I try to shepherd and bring a, mm. a, our people towards a like more livable future and how can I do those at, can I do those at the same time can I act on those two levels at the same time um, and I won't tell you what happens in case people want to see women at no war, spoilers. which I love. This is not it. a spoiler. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but let's say she she tries to do both, mm-hmm. and runs into complications mm-hmm. and challenges doing both at the same time. Not that they're impossible, but like they're more entwined and complicated than you think. And the final scene of the movie is her picking up this the the girl that she's going to adopt and they're going back to the airport I believe in Kiev and there's a flood and they have to get out of the bus and walk Mm. and it's just her carrying this four-year-old through this flood water so it's like no matter what she does that reality of the climate fundamentally Mm. acting in ways that we still can't predict that we don't have an analog for. Like, that doesn't, even if she's successful, that doesn't go away. And I think that's really important to think about, too. It's like, even as we're slowing down this train, even as we're making these really fundamental shifts in how we love and live and where energy comes from, that doesn't mean that the climate's just going to magically stop changing, like, tomorrow, even if everyone, you know, put the brakes on everything right now. And her task is still to kind of be a guide through that tumultuousness. And it makes me think that, you know, the one, like, 
the level to which we expect our our day-to-day existence to be really stable, that's actually like a fairly new thing. And there are plenty of different populations in the U.S., certainly all around the world um, as well, that are used to living through great uncertainty and and like disequilibrium. I think part of what's happening is that it's like striking the white middle class in the U.S. right now, (laughs) and we're not quite as familiar Mm -hmm. with that. Um, and, and it makes me think of something that someone said to me in an event a couple of weeks ago where they were like, you know, we just had to evacuate our house for the third time because it flooded. And I told my kids to like pack up their bags and get ready. And they did. And they were sort of like, this is what we do now. Um, and this person was speaking, I think in part to say like a slightly older generation, the parents of those kids are maybe more expectant of a certain kind of stability and so when we encounter disequilibrium we're more thrown off by it but she was kind of like my kids know this to be the truth they Mm -hmm. know this unstable world to be the world that they live in and they were less thrown by that than I was and I was like huh um so yes uh intergenerational change (laughs) (laughs) I like that we've identified a theme for this conversation (laughs) yes Um, to that point, so I, I, I want to narrow in slightly, um, and maybe I can make this concrete. <laughs> um, you're a writer. You think so much about words. You yes, think so much about yeah. language. And, and the end of the book, you know, you're really, you give this kind of beautiful story about how thoughtful you're being mm. with your with your son, I believe. Yes. Um, about the language that you use, even just in, in walking, you know, by your your local environment. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, you know, can you speak to, to how you're viewing that? I mean, that feels like, on one hand, a kind of parental intervention, but also just a really beautiful idea about the importance of words and language. And I, I would love to hear from a writer about what that means. Sure. Um, you know, so I'm definitely like inspired by and thinking about Robin Wall Kimmerer a lot. A lot of people, uh, I'm so pleased that Breathing Sweetgrass has become like a kind of touch point. It's a beautiful, yeah. I mean, that and Gathering Moss, but certainly uh, I think the chapter is the animacy of language and yes. you know, just this beautiful description of, of how words impact us and our thinking and at a really primal level. Absolutely. I mean, she she talks about like, you know, who's doing the acting in your sentences? Um, what does it mean to call a tree an it instead of a, a she, a he, a they? You know, like, what if what if we really have... Like, I, I think what she's saying partly is that English isn't particularly good at recognizing <laughs> the animacy of the more-than-human world, and that's part of what's gotten us to the point that we're at. And mm-hmm. so... I definitely, you know, in when my son was younger, in describing the, I mean, I still do this, but, you know, when they can't talk, you're doing a lot of the talking. And I would be really specific in terms of how I described what was happening around him. Like, instead of saying to him, like, go greet the tree when we get home, you know, what if I say to him, the tree's greeting you. Like, look mm-hmm. up. It's waving its branches. It's saying hello. Um, to try to really help him recognize that tree as a living being. And it's funny. I kind of forget 
this was very recent, but he was describing to me, like, our house and our family. And he definitely counted, like, the tree as part of our family. Wow. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Um, some of this is sticking. This is great. I wish I had been that enlightened as a three-year-old. <laughs> I mean, I also think that three-year-olds are more enlightened. Right? Like, they are actually more, I think they're probably more inclined to do that. Their books teach them these things. Mm-hmm. Like, um, not all of them, but some of them. And so I think that they have a much more flexible idea of who and what is acting in the world. And we kind of, like try to bring them back into the fold of a particular way of thinking. And so now I sometimes think my new challenge is to try to not say to him, oh, that's incorrect. Mm. Oh, that like way of thinking about, you know, what's alive in a forest. Like, of course, there there are gnomes and of course (laughs) there are like centipedes that talk, you know. So... Um, it's been interesting to be like, I think it's working. And I also think that that's part of being a child and I have something to learn from him and I have Mm -hmm. to kind of like temper whatever impulse I may have. I would like to think I don't have it, but I'm sure I do at some level to like write his way of thinking. Mm -hmm. All right. So we are rapidly approaching the the end of our time. Right. And so I'm going to ask a completely unfair question of someone who who just put out a book. I think I know what's coming. (laughs) What's next? Uh (laughs) Or or maybe more broadly, because you did just put this book out a month ago. Um, What what are you thinking about? Where Mm -hmm. where is your mind being drawn? What has your attention now? And maybe hinted us of what's down the road from you. All right. All right. I can do that. I mean, I have three answers. Oh, excellent. And um, the first, what's next, is that I am sitting here like 20 weeks pregnant. Congratulations. Thank you. I wasn't going to spill the beans, but congratulations. Yes. So like next is having another baby. Incredibly exciting. Um, And... I have made a promise to myself that I am not allowed to have a book deadline mm. hanging over me as I mother a newborn again. That was one of the hardest things yeah. was finding time and energy, like wrestling it out of a day that felt sort mm. of wanting very much to be attuned to to my growing son. Um, so I'm not allowed to have a book deal. Wise. Um, but you can, I have a really fun article coming out in Orion. Oh, outstanding. Um, this December that I actually collaborated with a former student of mine who's become like an incredible mm. audio producer on, um, we spent two years asking folks how their romantic lives were being impacted by climate change. Oh, wow. And we also act like, asked like breeding bird specialists. And, you know, how's climate change impacting breathing birds and Mm. how's it impacting sea turtles and their love lives? So that's coming out. It's also going to be made into like a, we think, like knocking (laughs) on the wood, but this American Life episode. All of that being said, I think I might write a novel next that's like sort of auto fiction about raising Mm. children on an imperiled planet. Um, My husband's from Columbia. And I think that the book is sort of going to be about trying to figure out. We both feel very profoundly that we know where we're from. Um, And I think 
as we raise children together, we recognize how much of that rootedness is a sense, is, is a story that we've told ourselves and a fiction in a way. And so we're trying to think about like what stories do we tell our children so that they are of two places. And what does it mean to be of two places, especially as, you know, I think a lot about being of one place helps you really recognize the change that's happening there. And I sometimes feel that like ability to see and live um, in a way that's really aware of the speed at which our earth is changing. I think of that as being a thing that comes when you're in place. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what does it mean to have two places? I think that we don't have a lot of stories that talk about that. And yet I think so many people have two or three or four places right now. Um, So I think I'm trying to figure out like a novel that thinks through that question in like a big epic family making kind of way. Oh, that's Uh, so exciting. (laughs) So I think I think that's where I'm going. Uh, But, you know, in six years from now. Well, I cannot wait to see your Orion article. I am excited for six years down the road to read whatever the next project is. In the meantime, Elizabeth Rush is the author of The Quickening on Motherhood in Antarctica in the 21st Century and Rising Dispatches from the New American Shore, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. They are both fantastic books. Thank you so much, Elizabeth Rush, for joining us. Um, And I cannot wait to talk to you about your next project down the road. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's our story for today, but I want to note that as we're in December, we are in a season of giving. Uh, Over the last few months on Gulfstreams, we've highlighted a lot of different local organizations working hard to keep our government accountable, demand better pollution policies, and create disaster mitigation infrastructure. Uh, If you're looking for an organization to support, I'd encourage you to consider one of our outstanding local environmental nonprofits or if you're passionate about the work that we're doing here on Gulf Streams and want to continue to make high-quality, free, public radio possible for all, please consider a donation to KPFT. And lastly, if you've missed any of our episodes and want to catch up, uh, make sure to check out the Gulf Streams podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. Uh, podcast episodes are available after the show airs here on KPFT every Monday, so if you can't listen live, check us out anytime, and make sure to tell your friends and family about their source for environmental news right here in Houston. If you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, leave a voicemail at 713-348-4081 or email me at westont at rice.edu. Gulf Streams is a co-production of KPFT Houston 90.1 FM, Galveston 89.5 FM, and Huntsville 89.7 FM with Rice's Center for Environmental Studies with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio. Produced by Weston Twardowski, co-produced by Joseph Campana, audio engineer Rico Enriquez, research support provided by Jaden Bray Boyce and Sienna Yen. Stay tuned for the R&R show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston.